0: So you want to start with the match story?
1: No, no, I wanna I wanna talk about Christmas first.
0: That's not on your outline.
1: Does everything I'm going to say have to be a point on the outline?
0: Be helpful. <laughs> well, go ahead.
1: It's not gonna happen that way. So I'm thinking back to Christmas. I don't know what year, but I want to say it was when Zadie was a baby. At the most, Zeke was a baby. So what was that? Eleven years ago. And I remember being convinced that before any of them opened their presents, that I would read the Christmas story from the Bible. Do you remember this? I do. <laughs> and so they were all ready to open their presents. They were all so anxious to open their presents. But in my mind, I thought if I could control by before they opened the presents, if I read the Christmas story from the Bible, that I could control in what order, and just the whole meaning of Christmas in general. And I remember we had, it wasn't FaceTime at the time. What was it? Was it Skype?
0: I think it was Skype. Okay, yeah. yeah.
1: We'd Skyped your parents, and I vividly remember your mom like, she's making them listen to a Bible story before they open their presents, but they dutifully listened to every word. And then we opened our presents. (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that was I, that was the first and only year we did that,
1: yes, that was not a tradition that stuck. <laughs> and I like reflecting back on that because I think that story reminds me of, like a state of mind or a frame of mind that I had for a long time in my mothering journey of really overestimating my control and underestimating my influence.
0: Now, I'll tell the story
1: you've been waiting for, Steve.
0: The match story?
1: Yes, the match story.
0: The first thing on your outline?
1: Yes, the point one on my outline. Okay, so Zach was, was he three? Maybe. We had no other kids at the time. We had just Zach. So our exclusive attention was solely on him for better and worse. And, And the business, we were running the sign shop at the time. And so we had put him to bed. And he was, for some reason, we'd put him to bed in our bed, which wasn't like a normal part of the routine, but something we did sometimes. And so we put him to bed and then I was going downstairs to watch a movie with Steve and he saw a candle on the entertainment center in our room and he asked about the matches and he asked with great curiosity how matches work. And step by step, everything about it. And being the young, naive mother that I am, I went into great detail exactly how it's done. I mean, I just saw this as a moment to capitalize on his passion and his interest and his curiosity. And of course, I included, you don't light matches. Like, that's something mom does. You don't do that. And so then I tucked him into bed and went downstairs and got settled onto our green, comfy couch, ready to listen to a movie. And then what did I hear, Steve?
0: Mom, something very scary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mom was in panicked, panicked, panicked. complete panic. I wish maybe we could get Zach to voice in exactly how he said it. He probably would not be a fan of that. But in his most panicked, sweet three-year-old voice, he said, Mom, something really scary has happened. And just by the panic in his voice, the first syllable, I was already sprinting upstairs. And sure enough, got upstairs to
0: see. The bed was on fire.
1: Yes, our literal bed was on fire. Not a huge fire. Small fire. Very small fire. But our bed was on fire. Our three-year-old set our bed on fire, and I think that was actually exactly why we then went on to have seven more children. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. It seemed like a metaphorical joke. Was that too much? Do you want to edit that out? No, good. okay, we're fine. So, anyways, of course, we put the fire out thankfully it easily was
0: put the fire out eas- like it was a, a at that point what a quarter sized yes burning it was a smoldering not uh, a you know, smoldering <laughs> raging inferno
1: yes and so and i think that if i remember him recalling the story he's like he got scared as soon as it worked to like the match and then he dropped it but told us right away and so it was thankfully super easy easy to deal with terrifying for all of us cuz it could have been horrific right but super easy. And I just often laugh when I think back on that story because I was ready to just give him all of the information and then walk away and completely trust that I had control over his choices. And I I don't think I've ever stopped reflecting on that dynamic, not continually, but I revisit a lot of this idea of like, how much influence do we have over another human in a relationship and how much control? And I think it's so easy to overestimate the control we have, which is actually practically none, and completely underestimate the influence.
0: Welcome. 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 To celebrate. To celebrate Tory. Welcome to Celebrate Story.
1: Meanderings in motherhood. 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 With my mom. My mom? It's my mom. With my mom.
0: With my wife. Julie
1: Wagner. Julie Wagner. Julie Wagner.
0: Julie Wagner. So the toddler, Zach, has grown up and now is in college and heading towards adulthood, in adulthood, heading further into adulthood. How has that relationship changed and how you, you deal with those influence versus control situations?
1: I think that's such a big question. And I don't have, all I can speak to is my experience. And it's interesting because I think that's, there is something alluring about control. Because I think back to when all the kids were little, when they're first born, you never have more control when they're first born. And even then there's an illusion of control, right? Like the very gracious gift that they're in your arms that there's nothing we did to make that happen but there's an illusion that you have control because you control when their diaper is changed and you you can kind of help put them in a sleep rhythm to where setting up all the things to help them fall asleep and follow that rhythm and you can control what clothes they wear like you'll never have a higher amount of control when they're so little and then as they get older and older and older there's I don't think there's less control, I think there's a stripping away of the illusion of control, of how little you control. And then it it makes me think of, you know, yeah, cuz Boaz is 2 years old and he wants to ride his jeep now that it's working, now that we've replaced every part on this cute little toy. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Mm-hmm. Now that it's finally working again, he wants to take that Jeep and ride it down the street. Or if, if we'd let him, he'd ride it all around the whole neighborhood. Down the highway. Down the highway. Yes. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, we're constantly <laughs> trying to have power over of like, no, this. these are the boundaries. You have to go with an older kid or you have to go with us. Not successful <laughs> with those boundaries.
0: So what does power over mean?
1: Oh, you know I love talking about this. So I think it was Brene Brown that first introduced me to the dynamics of power. And she helped me understand the difference of power over versus power with. Power over is the typical way we think of power Um, or we talk about power. You know, it's built on force and domination and coercion and control. And power over believes that power is finite It's scarce and it's a resource and it needs to be hoarded. Um, You know, it's, you know, the opposite of power with. So power with is the idea that power is shared and relational and that when power is shared, it expands and it becomes more than what was possible if it was hoarded. Um, It kind of makes me think about the dynamic that we try to create with our kids with chores. You know, power with is shared and it it grows and collaborates and it's built on respect and support, solidarity and influence and power with can build bridges. So, you know, power over would be, you have to do these things and you have to do it to all my standards. Power with would be, we need to work on these chores together and giving someone room to make mistakes and giving someone room to fail. And power with gives empowerment to the individual. And it, it builds a bridge. I mean, power with builds bridges and builds connection across differences and power over builds resentment to the people that don't have the power. I think personality goes into this quite a bit. My a good friend of mine who's an Enneagram Eight, when she about a year ago she started her own um, learning community, learning cooperative, and she intentionally set up a group of people that shared power over the co-op. Um, I just really admired this because her and I both we actually both our youngest children are three days apart, and we. Have so many fun conversations because it comes more natural to her to establish power and establish the boundaries. And it comes way more natural to me to establish connection. And I get, I can get too far into caring too much about connection. And the flip is true for her. And we our growing edge is the opposite. Her growing edge is to to be more empathetic and to care more about connection. And my growing edge is. To care more about not giving away, not abdicating what is my power, what is actually my own space to control. And I just, I think this too is what influences my chore philosophy. It's like, it does blow me away how when I share power with the children and the teenagers, they can do far more than I could ever do if I kept the power. If I kept the power and is like these are the things we're doing in the kitchen, then we could only do what I know and what I my ability to execute and my ability to manage. But when I share power, not just with cooking, but with education, it really expands what is possible. Now it doesn't mean that there's more blunders, but it really is a beautiful thing. To share power because it empowers. Yes, that the whole dynamic of power over versus power with is endlessly fascinating to me. And in fact, in reference to the last podcast we did on what is alive in me is alive in you, where I just like briefly covered the basics of nonviolent communication. That's probably a great summary of nonviolent communication, because violent communication is all about having power over. I'm the judge. I decide you're bad. I decide you're good. I'm the evaluator of you, and that's power over. And nonviolent communication, where you're identifying your specific need or your specific feeling or the other's specific need and feeling which is something human and universal and in me and you that's power with that's like we both have needs and feelings here how can we work together to express and get those met and then power over communication is name calling or evaluating or judging
0: so how does that affect let's say our teenagers now um in the way we parent them.
1: I love that. Okay. So I remember, I guess it was the orange conference I heard that they talked about. And I see this in my own individual experience and my kids, that the crisis of middle school is who likes me and who do I like? And the crisis of high school is freedom. And those are the crisis that like, that constantly on the brain. And it makes sense. Like I remember my own teenage years. I remember, you know, I've told you my dad was loved control. Like in our first family, it was kind of a joke that dad's a control freak. And he he definitely grew in that as he aged and- um, Grew away from it. Grew away from it. Yeah, grew away from it and definitely cared more about influence than control and shared power. But I watched my older siblings, I was the youngest of four, and I watched two of my siblings do a lot of power struggles with him. It was always about power. And so it's like my teenage years, there was somebody I wanted to date and my my dad had the approach of power over at first and was like, you absolutely can't date this person. He believed that this this boy was an African American. I couldn't date him, that he believed that was wrong. And I, I felt a strong conviction that that wasn't wrong. And what did I do? When he le- wasn't looking, I did what I wanted to do. He couldn't control my heart and i think from my own experience of being a teenager like that it is it becomes a little more fresh on my brain i can say you have to do this but you can't control what someone thinks and desires and hopes for and then that makes me think about education it's like i've always found this piece in education of like you know when i was in school i hated being told what i had to learn when i had to learn it but yet if i chose the task I blossomed, and I loved learning it. And I've always used the rocket metaphor with education of, you know, if it's my child's choice in what they're learning, all I have to do is give them just drops of rocket fuel and they fly to the moon. But if I am choosing what they're learning, if I'm keeping that control, then it is like taking a rocket on my back and trying to move it like just the impossible task of moving us across the street with a rocket on the back. So I guess I've talked a long time and I don't remember your question, but my whole point is
0: you were answering my question. (laughs) I was
1: answering your question. I just, I was like, I got on a roll, which is what I love to do. I love to process these ideas out loud, but it comes, for my personality, it comes so natural to, I want to share this power with you. Because if I have something that could help you, I want to share it. So it's the idea of like, do you share power? Because it's infinite when it's shared. Or do you hoard it? Because when you hoard power, it's an attitude of scarcity and fear. But when you share it, it's it's an attitude of abundance. And it multiplies.
0: I remember having a conversation with Zach at some point that... And I think I just kind of realized, I don't know, It <clears throat> we have eight kids. Um, Zach and Zane share a bedroom in the basement, which has an exit to the back of the... So there, there just came a point, he did something, and it was something that I didn't approve of. Um, I don't remember what it was at this point. but And then, but I just went to him, I was like, you know... He, he was 16, and He had a car at that point. He was driving, like he had freedom in that way. Um, and I just went to him. I was like, you know, one, there's not. You're only. He, you're in our house if you go to college in the next year or two. Um, that you, it's time for you to start making decisions. Like, you know, we're a family of ten. We're busy. Um, I go to bed at 9 o'clock every night you have an exit to the basement. I mean, you could do what you want to do. I, I have no illusions that
1: he won't set the bed on fire. Uh, right.
0: <laughs> and I, it's just, it's a different parenting approach and that's hard, but it's there. I think try. I think I've come to a point to realize that at some point your, your, your parenting instincts don't stop, but the role of being that everyday parent Slows down or starts to go away, and they become their own adults like
1: and it's painful, it's painful. I want to jump in and control, and it's but it feels like when I do that, it it hurts the relationship and I think about how when my dad stopped controlling because he later circled back to me and many years later came and apologized, and he realized he was wrong to make that rule, and that he he saw that that was wrong and that was the wrong attitude and the wrong approach. And it's, to me, that was sharing power. He shared the vulnerability that I'm wrong. And so that's something I hope to just keep practicing because, man, we just mess it up a lot. Um, But to be aware that you're going to do what you're going to do when I turn my back and I can't control that. And I've wasted a lot of energy over the years thinking I could.
0: But you also... You also set up that you hope the work that you've done when you did have more control, when there were babies, toddlers, elementary school, pre-adolescent, that, that those, that that's going to bear fruit, that they're going to want to make good decisions, that they're going to, when they make a bad decision that they tell you about it and you guys can work through it and help them. And you know, it, so there comes a point where it just becomes, I don't know if you're a gambler, when you're, at the craps table, there's a point where the dice are in the air, like, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Oh, all the bets are made. All the dice are in the air. Now you just have to kind of wait for the result and accept the consequences.
1: I love that you use the gambling metaphor because the proverb, we cast the dice, but the Lord determines all they fall has always like, I don't know, kind of made my hair stand up because Goodness, that brings it back to the Rubik's cube and slot machine.
0: You are going to have to explain that. <laughs> okay.
1: The Rubik's cube and I am looking
0: at a slot machine here in our yes room here. Yes,
1: <laughs> you are looking right at it. Well, it's like so. Ezekiel, our ten-year-old, um, last year really got into Rubik's cubes, and it was such a fun. It was such a fun phase because it was one of the few. Um, hobbies or toys that traveled up the family chain so like zeke i guess he was nine at the time when he got into it you know he started with this like two by two rubik's cube moved up to three by threes four by fours i think he stopped around the five by fives
0: i think he just got a five by five for christmas
1: okay that's right that's right okay i couldn't remember which which cube he stopped at but i didn't know about this until my kids got into it but it's like to solve a rubik's cube you basically look up the algorithm And you memorize the algorithm, you memorize the formula, the step-by-step formula of how to solve this Rubik's Cube. And it's hard and it would frustrate them and they'd work at it and get frustrated and lose their algorithm pages and go back and find them and go redo those algorithms. But if you kept going and kept following these algorithms, and the bigger the Rubik's Cube, the longer the algorithms you'd have to memorize would be. But it's like if you just followed that path, there was a clear you know step by step process to solve this rubik's cube and i loved seeing like ezekiel got zane into it who's older than him and zane kind of got zack into it a little bit like i loved seeing it travel up the chain i mean it was m- mainly zeke and zane's thing but what i loved about this is like i think that's the heart of what i wrestle with both spiritually and as a mother it's like i thought life was like A Rubik's cube algorithm. I thought. I'm sure I knew there were some things you couldn't control, but it's like I thought that if I memorized all these things and followed all these ten steps, that I would get a certain outcome. And back shortly after, dropped we dropped Zach off to college at Mars Hill. We Steve and I stayed the night at Lake Lure, and I went for a run. And I stumbled upon an antique shop, and I like quickly went around this antique shop in like the middle of my run and I saw, saw an antique slot machine and I had a moment with this slot machine and I ended up buying this slot machine for like what was it 45 bucks. We ended up driving back cuz we forgot to buy it then so we took all the kids back a couple weeks later. And I love this slot machine. It sits on the shelf in our bedroom right above our podcast table and I just love this because it's like life is neither a slot machine, because there is so much beyond our control. This makes me think of COVID. Like, you know, anytime you get a cold during COVID, you don't know is this going to escalate into like the worst story that you've heard, or is this going to be something mild? And it's like you have influence over some of the things in your body, but you don't have control over all the things in your body. And so, this metaphor, this visual was like something really. Helpful to me to chew on, and it, it like I just thought about how it's like life is neither a Rubik's Cube, and I got into this long Voxer conversation with my best friend from college of like it's not totally a Rubik's Cube and it's not totally a slot machine, it's somewhere a mix of both.
0: So, we talked a good bit about, about Zach on this podcast so far but i do have another question that i think is going to relate to zach or doesn't relate to zach but he was kind of our test case in this (laughs) he had a four and a half year head start on the rest of them and then there were a lot of them after that so um how did control the idea of control versus influence change after zach got diabetes for you
1: that's such a good one um Yeah, so he was a month away from nine years old. So I think this week he's got the 10 year anniversary that he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I don't think many people know, but type 1 diabetes is insulin dependent diabetes. So for reasons we don't entirely understand, you know, environmental, genetic, and autoimmune factors, that's when someone's pancreas just literally stops working. Um, And So then we were quickly launched into this world of every single food item you had to know. Like You couldn't just have a banana. You needed to know, was that banana an 18-gram carbohydrate banana or was it a 23-gram carbohydrate banana? Because that's a difference between one unit of insulin and a unit and a half. You couldn't just go around and have a 66-gram Coca-Cola. I mean, that is six units of insulin and you need to like do that in advance. I mean, it's this insane mathematic puzzle all the time. And if you know a type one diabetic or, and I I just know less about type two diabetics, but I bet it's similar. um, Just tell them they're doing an amazing job because even on their worst day, the amount of math they are constantly doing every hour to do the work of their pancreas is truly breathtaking. It's truly breathtaking because you're okay. So you had a bowl of chili. Well, how many beans were in that chili? Cause that decides how many units of insulin. Cause that's your, in a bowl of chili, that's your carb source. So it's like this constant mathematical equation. And it's like, you know, you know, like with anyone's suffering, it's just an unveiling of how little they control, right? Like the slot machine. And I think you know, there's such an attempt, human nature to not just teenagers want freedom and control, right? Like, we all are grasping at what we control. And I think I still wrestle to this day, you know, I'm pretty hardcore, you know, we go to Chick-fil-A, I don't mind that the kids will get a soda at Chick-fil-A, but it's like, don't you dare ask me for a second sugary drink. It's like, I just can't even handle it. And I think, you know, it really is like, um, it's a battle of fear of, you know, I can't control whether your pancreas might stop working, but I can influence how much sugar is going into your body. Um, So I think that my whole reaction to that and just the patterns and habits I have are a reaction of wanting more control than I have.
0: I think I remember on a uh, work trip that you went with me down to Atlanta Last year, last winter, maybe? Is that where
1: the Ferris wheel, we rode yeah, the Ferris you rode wheel? Yeah, we rode the big
0: Ferris wheel. Um, we listened to a talk by Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel. He had an illustration about kind of chaos versus control and a stream or...
1: Oh, yes. I
0: sort of remember it. Do you...
1: Yes, let me read that because that is such... That is a beautiful summary um, of kind of that balance that I wrestle with, and I think it's so relevant to the pandemic, the COVID world. It's like, what do we really influence and what do we really control? Um, so, this is what he says He says, Imagine a peaceful river running through the countryside. That's your river of well being. Whenever you're in the water, peacefully floating along in your canoe, you feel like you're generally in a good relationship with the world around you. You have a clear understanding of yourself other people, and your life. You can be flexible and adjust when situations change. You're stable and at peace. Sometimes, though, as you float along, you veer too close to one of the river's two banks. This causes different problems depending on which bank you approach. One bank represents chaos, where you feel out of control, Instead of floating in the peaceful river, you are caught up in the pull of tumultuous rapids, and confusion and turmoil rule the day. You need to move away from the bank of chaos and get back into the gentle flow of the river. But don't go too far, because the other bank presents its own dangers. It's the bank of rigidity, which is the opposite of chaos. As opposed to being out of control, rigidity is when you are imposing control on everything and everyone around you. You become completely unwilling to adapt, compromise, or negotiate. Near the bank of rigidity, the water smells stagnant and reeds and tree branches prevent your canoe from flowing in the river of well-being. So one extreme is chaos, where there's a total lack of control. The other extreme is rigidity where there's too much control, leading to a lack of flexibility and adaptability. We all move back and forth between these two banks as we go through our days, especially as we're trying to survive parenting. When we're closest to the banks of chaos or rigidity, we're farthest from mental and emotional health. The longer we can avoid either bank, the more time we spend enjoying the river of well-being. Much of our lives as adults can be seen as moving along these paths, sometimes in the harmony of the flow of well-being, but sometimes in chaos, in rigidity, or zigzagging back and forth between the two, harmony emerges from integration. Chaos and rigidity arise when integration is blocked. I just love that. I love that. (laughs) Probably I love that here's this beautiful metaphor of the slot machine and the Rubik's cube to me. I have a question for you. Which one? Now it's my turn to ask you a question. Which one I'm curious if you would say the same thing as me. Does it come easier for you to get hung up in chaos or easy do you think like do you get stuck in chaos or rigidity more? I mean, I think I know your answer, but I want to hear your answer
0: on the podcast. Stuck when I feel stuck, I think it's chaos.
1: When you feel stuck, it's chaos I,
0: because I I don't handle chaos well. Um <laughs> So, I I tend to lean towards wanting schedules and um, systems and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I don't. I can see where the harmony comes from because if you know, I when I went to college, I wanted to be when I first went to college, I wanted to be an athletic training person, then or physical therapy, something like that. And I was like, I don't really like science that much, so that didn't last very long. And then I was like, I'm going to go into business. I'm going to be an accountant. And then I did some accounting and I was like, wow, I can't do this all day. Just, <laughs> just staring at numbers and moving them into blocks on Excel. And, you know, so it, there is, I can see where the harmony is on some rigidity, some chaos, some freedom, that sort of thing. But I think when I feel out of control, it tends to be chaos that's causing me to be out of control. Okay. What about you?
1: Um, I liked hearing your answer. I think you know we always we we only know ourselves in comparison to another. It's just the way it is. And of course, I tend to be more comfortable with chaos. You tend to be more comfortable with control. And I think we, for the most part, over twenty years, find the middle ground together. And of course, I want some control. I'm not. And of course, I think you like chaos, or else. you married the wrong
0: yeah i have to i have to embrace chaos embrace (laughs)
1: chaos but i just think it reminds me of like when we went through the scheduling situation like you were so on the schedule
0: scheduling for the podcast
1: (laughs) actually any schedule any schedule any schedule anytime we've done any schedule but yes well
0: we had this conversation recently that We like to be able to be spontaneous. Yes. You know, if we do, if, you know, if we decide one day we just want to rest, like we can sit around and rest, or if we want to go for a hike or we want to, you know, go to the beach for a day or something, we we like spontaneity. But I think we found that without a schedule, it's funny, it was, we, we kind of found if without a schedule, without something, you know, guiding us we didn't have space for so- spontaneity. It's so true. That cuz I the-
1: resist the schedule. I I will admit that. Yes. <laughs> I know you're surprised. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but without making sure the things that have to get done are getting done. You know, you have to get groceries. You have to change diapers. You have to mow the lawn. You have to pay the bills. You have to go to work. Like if you're not if if that stuff isn't getting done, then you don't efficiently then you you don't have the time to to the to be spontaneous spontaneous it's so true. it's in in the the stream river metaphor lends itself to that that if you don't have both, you get stuck and you don't have a peace of mind about it. If you're in the middle you can find balance to your life and it's more harmonious.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think about, I immediately go to education and I think my favorite seasons with homeschooling is when I have that blend of a small structure, small boundaries, and then small things that I control and then lots of space for their loves and their choices and their passions.
0: Right. They're getting their core stuff done. Regularly, so that if you want to go to the zoo for a day or a science center or a field trip or a so we can do it or a rest day or something that there's space for that.
1: And how about this? This comes full circle. you wanting the outline for editing purposes. It gave us the framework for this podcast, <laughs> yes, as opposed to how did I typically like to just turn on the microphone
0: <laughs> and do your brainstorming.
1: This worked much better. (laughs) A few years ago for Zoe's birthday, I think she was eight, we saw the movie Leap. And she had a group of girlfriends that went with her. And after the movie, before lunch, all the girls were leaping. doing all these dance moves to the car and in the parking lot and everywhere. They were just literally trying to imitate all the dances they just saw. And we recently kind of rewatched this movie with my younger boys. They did the exact same thing. It's like you see it and then you want to try it. Or I think about the time that Ezra binge watched all those Spider-Mans and then he was throwing webs all around the place. I mean, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've seen this too. Or even if you're not a parent, I mean... In my own life, I read, you know, 22 books by Richard Rohr, and all of a sudden I'm quoting Richard Rohr. There's a phrase for this, and in researching for the podcast, I realize it actually comes from a psalm. Um, It's the phrase, we become like what we behold. It's like the more you digest something, the more you focus on something, the more you look at something, the more you become like what you look at. And this is fascinating to me. And I think that presents a really interesting question in the control, illusion of control, influence discussion. Because has there ever been a time in history that we know of that we seemingly have more control? Um, you know, I, I you set up all the microphone levels for this podcast and you controlled it just like you want it. We set up our Alexas to Play the exact songs we want in the exact order we want, the exact vibe we want. We can control our garage door openers and, like, don't even get us started on our smartphones. I mean, how many books are there right now in the new year that we're all reading on how to break up or how to have a better relationship with our smartphone? There's this relationship because we have so much control on everything on our smartphone. But do we? It's like we're reading all these books to try to have better control with our smartphone. But the question I'm building to here is, are we becoming like what we behold? From the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, I'm interacting with technology all day long that I control. And I wonder how much that is changing the very nature of our psyches, I guess is the way I would phrase it, in And how much more we have to check what do we actually really control with another human being. It's just an interesting idea to play with in my head because if I can control everything on my smartphone, I can control when I get messages. I could control so much to a fine degree on my phone and real relationship, real presence is a surrendering of control, a circling of giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And I wonder if there's this subtle tendency in my mind to get used to all the control I have and have a harder time with real presence, with real community, with real relationship, because I'm used to so much control. I mean, we've, you know, the whole thing that we've never been more connected, right? We can people we love, we can Instagram message them, Facebook message them, text them, voxer them, Marco Polo them, and all those ways of communicating, and those are just some, all those ways of communicating, I have so much control on that conversation. And real presence, real togetherness, you don't. Would you please do me a favor, if you have enjoyed today's podcast or any podcast that you've listened here on Celebrate Story, could you please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast? And congratulations to Caitlin Christ for winning the book from episodes one's promotion. And thank you to all who shared about the podcast then.
0: an old soul with a new chance to grow I can't stop